Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. You're gonna be surprised, but with me this week are Jara. Hello. And Grace. How did I get here? And we're coming at you with some more Star Trek Las Vegas content. But before that, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do. First, our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as $1 per month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media to silly watch-along commentaries to our newest Spore Jump category where you get podcast episodes about non-Trek topics. To join us at any level, please visit www.patreon.com slash womenatwarp. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So what else is happening? Right now, we are a few days ahead of Dragon Con as this episode is released. And as I mentioned in the last episode, if you want to find me there, uh, check my schedule on the Women at Warp blog. There are 20 panels I have to do, so don't try and stop me in a hallway. Also, at this point, we're about a month out from our recording our book club episode. Um, so there's still time to grab the book and read it. It's called Dwellers in the Crucible, and it's by Margaret Wander Bonanno. Uh, and if you want to learn more about our book club, you can search Women at Warp on the goodreads.com page under groups. All right. So then let's get into the additional Vegas content. And the first thing we have to bring you is an interview with Jacqueline Kim, who played Demora Sulu in Star Trek Generations. You know, this was a really cool experience. Um, this was Jacqueline Kim, only her second convention. But uh, Jacqueline was there having great conversations at her booth. And I think beyond just um, what we had imagined talking about, which was largely about what it's like to play Demora Sulu, be in the fandom, and about um, her sort of, I guess, influence as, as a role model for Asian American girls. Um, Jacqueline Kim also had really interesting things to say about just science fiction more broadly, as well as about her, her uh, reproductive justice themed art. Mm. It's good stuff. Hi there. So um, if you're listening, Women at Work, we're here at Star Trek Las Vegas. Uh, this is Jarrah, and I'm here with Grace and Sue. And we are very excited to be interviewing the fabulous Jacqueline Kim, who played Demora Sulu on Star Trek Generations. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my gosh. I'm super excited. Um, just to give people uh, a sense of what it looks like right now, I'm behind my table at the convention. It's pretty crowded. And these three wonderful ladies are sitting behind my counter with me. And we're going to do this. I'm excited. Amazing. So um, this is your first convention, is that right? Um, it's my second. Okay. Um, so uh, how has it been going for you so far? What's, it, what's the experience been like? Well, I actually have a really the assistance of a great manager, and she's made the experience um, just way better than I've experienced before. I'm not great with crowds. I think I told you before the interview. So it's what's been really great about it is having the opportunity to have interface with people and listen um, and hear about their lives. I've been hearing a lot about of activism and just a lot of great thinkers. This morning I met a woman who works for the, um, she was in the military, she's a woman of color, she's Indian, and she actually joined the military so that other soldiers would see in her the face 
that they were seeing as the enemy. That was one of her missions. And um, yeah, she just does really cool work. That is really cool. I mean, none of us are really great with crowds either. Um, so it is, uh, it's an experience for sure, and it's a, a bit of a balance. Um, so I wanted to get started just really broadly asking you about um, how it happened that you were cast as Tamora Sulu and what that experience was like. So I had just gotten to Los Angeles in the mid-90s. I had had a theater career in Chicago and New York and Minneapolis. And um, my agent just got me a bunch of auditions. Star Trek and Disclosure, the film by Michael Crichton. It's interesting, a lot of the parts I've played have had to do with male-female politics, which is going to tie in with one of my art pieces right now. Um, and I remember I just, it's sort of like a trifecta. I got three jobs in a row, and it was, Star Trek was one of them. I got to audition. It was a good audition. Um, my sister was a big Trekkie growing up, so I knew it meant something to her, but for me it was just like learning how to be on film, and so yeah, that's how I got it. Cool, and what was it like, did you know this was going to be kind of a cultural phenomenon when you were cast? Cultural phenomenon meaning, like, did you know you were going to be part of this big thing where like people were going to, you know, know you from Star Trek and just want to talk about the same role and what that means to be sort of part of this history of being like the daughter of Sulu? So, no, I didn't. And I've been starting to read and understand recently, also because I co-wrote a sci-fi, a feminist sci-fi piece in 2015. Um, but I've been beginning to understand the significance of it, and I'm pretty excited now, 25 years later. But when I went into it, it was just more about doing the work, because I came from the theater and wanting to make sure that I did it well, and that, hoping that the part was substantial. Um, but I will also add as a side note, I've, I've always been a little bit afraid of becoming famous because as a woman, um, particularly a woman of color, uh, that can limit your ability to move through the world. And that's really important to me, my freedom. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, that's really valid. And um, it's unfortunate that our world is like that still. And um, especially for, for women in act, um, acting and yeah, absolutely understand. I can add a couple things to that now. I am more opening up more now because I see one's visibility can be a real great way to, um, like the things you pay attention to, the things you listen to, you can actually open doors and open ears to those things. Um, and then I have also ways, I have really skillful people around me, not a lot or anything. I'm a super independent operation. Um, I don't even have an agent. I'm, I'm rarely acting anymore. But there's a way to use your visibility to point in directions and focuses that you, that you find interesting. Definitely. Um, so I'd love to ask a little bit more about your feminist sci-fi piece. Um, actually, um, you know, I mean, we've all been fans of you since generations and um, love, I mean, just that one scene, I think that makes me smile more than anything else in the whole movie. Um, and because, I mean, Star Trek to that point, you know, like the diversity has pushed the envelope for the time. 
but I feel like it always could have done better. And um, just having more women of color, I mean, there's like, um, in terms of Asian women, you've got like you, you have Keiko O'Brien, there really aren't a lot. And um, yeah, Alyssa, uh, Sue just climbed in, Alyssa Ogawa. Um, but um, like no principles. Oh, Giorgio now. Um, so it's getting better, but it wasn't. And it, it's cool to see like Sulu such a meaningful character for a lot of people. Um, like that he has a family carrying on and that like you can sort of picture some of the traits of his character being carried forward in his daughter and a woman. So it kind of challenges the idea that like all of those traits would be like a men's purview alone, if that makes sense. Um, but I was, yeah. Can I ask you yeah. a question on Sulu? Um, so we saw actually in Star Trek Beyond, in the, the alternate original series timeline, we finally see Hikaru Sulu's family. We see his partner and his little girl. And there was a huge, I guess, outcry in a good way, like a celebration that we see a little Demora Sulu in, in Star Trek Beyond. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that of this character in one film carrying through to to what they're doing even now i just heard about that that oh. i appeared as a daughter i know that i thought he had I, i'd seen pictures of john okay so john cho yeah. and i have a history and i've directed him in a couple of plays and we've known each other when we first came to la so it's kind of wonderful that he's playing sort of my dad i guess it's an <laughs> it's an alternate universe right yeah. possibly um, no, I'm just hearing about that, and I think that's exciting. And I think, as an Asian American, um, because I think that there's sexism that's very strong still in the Asian culture, so I think for Asian American women, it can mean something pretty great. But um, I also think it's like, I was thinking today, Demora drives the ship, and I'm a really good driver. <laughs> And I just want to put that out into the world. <laughs> like this whole idea of like women can't drive. I'm really good. Like I live in LA and I park my car a lot and I judge my parking. <laughs> like I will literally be like the soundtrack go. I'll be like the announcer going. And that was a 4.9 or that was a 5.0. Yeah, I'm a really good driver. Side note. So recently on our social media, we shared an interview that you did with Sarah Kuhn, uh, um, at Angry Asian Men, also amazing blog. Um, and it was about um, what you meant to uh, girls particularly um, as like an Asian American woman in space. Um, but there was a lot of other stuff in there. And one thing that I just learned about from that interview was this feminist sci-fi that you ha uh, writing that you have done. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. Sure. So I don't know if you've heard of ITVS Future States. Okay, so PBS created um, ITVS, Future States, to make what they call mini features. And they basically give filmmakers $50,000 to make an educational feature, um, mini feature. So we made a short in 2013, Jennifer Pong is the director and the writer, and I co-wrote on that effort. Um, that came out, and it played the festivals, got lots of awards, and then we developed... From that short, um, we made a feature. We like sort of made a Frankenstein of a feature, and I did a lot of the writing on the feature. Um, and that was a labor of love, and that came out, let's see, we wrote, 
prepared, got money, made it in like 2013, finished all the effects. It came out in 2015, and we garnered a special jury prize at Sundance, which is pretty exciting for Jen and I for, um, for collaboration, which is pretty exciting, uh, which was really hard, too, when I was working on the film. But the story is what's beautiful. Um, it's about a mother who is aging out. She works in um, science and medical tech, and she's aging out of her role as a spokeswoman for a company. And in order for, she's a single mother, and in order for her daughter to um, make her way through society, we're just predicting that in the future it's going to require even more money. Um, her mother basically decides to go through the procedure that she's been selling her whole life, which is the singularity, transference of consciousness. And sort of in the vein of Kurosawa, who is a huge inspiration for me, um, we were trying to make the film about, like, let the audience know what's going on with the main character, that she is going to be leaving her daughter, but the daughter doesn't know. So the whole film is about a mother slowly like saying goodbye to her daughter while acting like everything's normal. And then the last fifth of the film, you see the daughter with the clone of the mother. And this actress is fantastic. Her name is Freya Adams. Um, yeah, I'm happy to talk about more, more about it if you want to know. Um, I'm really curious about um, what drove you to create this piece and whether you think it relates in any way to Star Trek, I guess, as a different type of science fiction? Well, we were called feminist sci-fi at Sundance, but I kept correcting them and saying it was domestic sci-fi. Domestic meaning like both Jen and I, we have Asian mothers, and they came to this country with lots of strengths and great education, but they sort of took a, a more domestic role because they married... I mean, they married and... I don't know, it just became very traditional. Maybe that happens when people immigrate. Um, <clears throat> the connections between advantageous, advantageous and Star Trek. I mean, I think being a futurist is super, super exciting. I'm kind of a closet architect. My father's an architect. I have um, my, my grandfather was a chemist. And I'm always fascinated to know the way that people live now and how that will imprint for the future and how that's going to impact the future. And I think the thing in Advantageous that we captured is how much machines have infiltrated our lives already and our consciousnesses and how that's affecting our interaction with each other. Um, and how as human beings it's like so important to get in there and still rally for live interaction, imperfection, mistakes, um, struggles. Because we can do everything with our phones all day and almost never leave a screen, I think that our bodies are breaking down um, and therefore the development of our brains, because our brains develop vis-a-vis -vis our body's interactions. Um, so there's that connection. But also I think it's talking a lot about what's inherent in women, which is like wanting to really spark life force in their progeny, but also in each other. And, you know, viva that forever, like women at warp, like <laughs> viva that. 
Um, that's probably a good segue into talking about some of your art. Um, Grace has uh, was going to lead that part of it. Grace is uh, an artist herself. Right. Well, to start off, we've talked about representation, about having an audience, and about self-expression. So, first off, let's. Could you tell us a little bit about this fetching shirt you have here? That is very intriguing. <laughs> okay. So, over the last four or five years, I've been transitioning into becoming a multidisciplinary artist, and a big. There, I do sculpture and drawing. So the plastics on one side, I compose. Um, but I also am moving into social practice. So a big part of that is advocacy for homeless youth. And another branch of it is these spicy t-shirts I'm making. So when Trump was campaigning, I literally saw in my head walking up to him and shaking his hand with like men in suits around him and him looking at my breasts and seeing this phrase, you came from a vagina. And when I say it, it's so, it releases me. Like, it just makes me feel so comfortable. Um, it's a universal truth. I mean, not everybody had a vaginal birth, but nonetheless, this is the gateway for all life. So, <laughs> I've made these t-shirts um, on a residency that I just had recently, and I put them out into the world to women, men, um, families, newborn. I sent one out to Singapore and the message is getting out. Um, and I'm calling it an action piece because I think that it depends on the where. The conversations he or she wants to have or doesn't. Who do they want to wear it with? Do they feel comfortable with them? Um, I think it, it's, for me, it's got kind of like a life of its own. And um, I'm selling them here at the con, and I gave one to Brent, I gave one to Garrett, I think soon I'm going to give one to Kate. So I'm excited to spread that message. I really like that idea of just the act of wearing an article of clothing being an art, artistic interaction. And I thought that was really interesting in reference to you saying you were interested in becoming more multidisciplinary as an artist. Now... You also mentioned part of that was sort of trying to work socially and do output as your, with your work. What do you have planned next? What are, you, what are your goals and ambitions there? Thanks so much, so much for this question and for the platform. Um, so last year, what I, I have a passion about making public space more conducive to people who don't have a home. And as we all know, there's no such thing as the homeless anymore. It's our friends. It's people who are, who are middle class and have jobs that are being laid off who can't afford to live in L.A. So one of the um, interventions I did last year was, have you ever seen solar lanterns? Right. So there's a company called Lucy that makes these amazing solar lanterns, and they're getting them to the third world, to third world countries. And I think Los Angeles is beginning to feel a bit like a third world country. Um, and I got them to this particular organization in Los Angeles called SPY, and I got them out to homeless youth, and I talked to them about it. So I have an article in Contango Journal, um, just the, the youth telling me how they use the lanterns, how useful it was, just learning about how they're navigating their lives, because I don't think people realize um, homeless people are deteriorating day to day. I just hope that the perspectives I'm gaining and the inter, um, like the inter, interactions I'm having with people 
I can somehow continue to translate that into communication that will then lead to more action, that will then lead to more communication. But that is a big overall goal is um, to just get with some really smart people, some good designers, and help people who are living in public space who cannot get housing right away um, just to make public space more conducive for them because it's it's an epidemic I mean I don't want to even brand it or package it as an epidemic because then it's another way of making it another problem um, I think that we all sort of have to just deal with it in our lives and take action about it and as a multidisciplinary artist, um, this is a very broad question, but it's one that I love to ask people who work in a bunch of different fields. Do you have a dream project? Do you have something that you've considered that if you had unlimited time and resources, you would like to do? Yes. yes. <laughs> and I'm secretly doing it. So I have a band called This I Heard, and I've collaborated with people over the years. And I'm collaborating with someone right now, a composer in Dallas, and we're sending each other files back and forth. So we're just helping each other further our songs, but I want to write long, long um, pieces. I don't want to say like symphonies, but if we live in a dream space, and that's the beauty of Star Trek, yes. it's like limitless space and endless diversity, um, or like, what is that called? Neuroscience, yes. whatever you pay attention to will actually occur. Oh, right, that is a, yeah, that's really true. I would just write music. I'm going to just compose music. I'm, I'm sort of actually returning to all the things I loved to do when I was really little, which is like sing, move my body, um, and make creative work. Yeah. And we were talking about how um, you are passionate about talking about the, having the conversation about the homeless problem in America and just in general, and how as a world that we see depicted in Star Trek, that's not a problem anymore. And there is this pathway that we have to take from the time we have currently now to the time we want to see in the future. And you briefly, before we started interviewing, were touching on how you thought there was this very interesting co-collaboration between the communities of Star Trek and the scientists out there who make uh, these things actually happen. What would you like to see happen next, you think? Is that too broad a question? I mean... I am going to speak as a neophyte in general to most of the Star Trek franchises. I pretty much know TOS and I know aspects of Next Generation. I know little snippets here and there. I mean, hmm. The notion that homelessness is solved in the future is pretty interesting. I'm going to kind of hang on to that for a second. So is it an economy-less future? It is a post-scarcity economy. Yeah. There's enough for everyone. Okay, can you just say that phrase again? Uh, it is a post-scarcity economy. Okay, so that's a huge dream, yeah. right? Yeah. Imagine that just existing as a human being meant that, I mean, I don't want to get into communism. <laughs> uh, I don't want to, I'm not against communism, but it's like... You do what you want to say. Uh, I just love valuing all human life. And um, really hearing where people come from because the diversity amongst us is amazing. And probably with all the species around us that are becoming extinct, there are probably aspects of being human that are becoming extinct. So I don't know how much Star Trek kind of does that kind of um, 
is the human not has the human lost its its weight its value its essence in the future in star trek um, we actually did a panel a bit about this yesterday and i think what came the idea is that if we're not fighting with each other over resources, um, you know, either because certainly in our own society, there's ways things could be distributed better. Like things are distributed very unequally. And, um, but also in the future, if we had replicators, people don't, aren't fighting for food. You can have food. Um, uh, you don't need to be fighting for healthcare, um, that, humanity's best traits can rise to the surface and that we focus uh, on like bettering ourselves and the rest of humanity and uh, it, like by being scientists and artists and um, writers and um, counselors and other things that give back to our world and to other people partly because we're not so focused on what divides us amongst ourselves um, by feeling like, you know, maybe um, like we're more entitled than those people to have a roof over our heads or those types of attitudes. So hmm. I think what's most important to me about Star Trek is that it makes one understand what a kind of fascinating thing you have in the life that you're living and how how much you are an architect of your experience. And if you really were empowered with that knowledge, what would you do? I mean, the questions you guys are asking me, I'm sorry to call you you guys, because you're not guys at all. The questions my comrades are asking me <laughs> are, are great questions. It would be great if, I would love to curate conversations the way that you're doing where you just ask, you just open up, lay out the carpet, as it were, for someone to just say, what do you dream or what do you think is possible? Because like when I was, I'm reading um, the physics of Star Trek right now and just understanding Hawking and understanding Einstein and understanding physics, how like from one point to one point across the circle is actually not the most direct route in a curved space. I mean... Just that notion just changes things. It makes you kind of not want to literalize your circumstance and see see more deeply, I guess. That's really neat. Um, and I think that not just Star Trek, but science fiction and science, they do inspire us to look at things differently. You know, like there, there'll be those big announcements about like discovering new exoplanets and things. And, and Star Trek talks about how, you know, realizing we're not, if we realize we're not alone in the universe, that maybe that could be a catalyst for change for us to, you know, realize we're all in this together and we have to, you know, up our game and start treating each other more like you know, fellow beings. Um, so I think that's really cool. I mean, how many galaxies are out there? Lots. Billions. <laughs> Billions of galaxies. So if you have this tiny little lifetime and you realize what it is, like that it, it is a speck on like, on this huge landscape of billions of galaxies, then I think like the most important thing you'd want to be is conscious that you have a life in your hands. Like if you can have that every day, you're really lucky. And if I can inspire that through my work or in my conversations, I'd just be really happy. That's amazing. Do you have anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I'm looking at Zubin Mehta right here. 
Um, he's one of the greatest conductors in the world, and he is the husband of Nancy Kovac, who I believe it's it's her first con. And um, he's just he's rolling around in a wheelchair, but he's actually going to be like um, conducting in throughout Europe in a week or so. This is the this is the capability of a Star Trek convention: is that you can see giants just strolling around, rolling around beside you. And it's just a total pleasure to meet you. I hope to, you know, drop in in the future and check in. And I really look forward to listening to your podcast. And all power to you. Oh, let's see. Um, if you want to check me out on Instagram, um, just hashtag, oh, not hashtag. Handle is at you came from a vagina. <laughs> or, uh, and that will connect you to my studio, which is Visibilities. And my band is This I Heard. I'm on Facebook. Stuff like that, yeah. Awesome. We will uh, share the links to all your profiles in our show notes. So thanks so much again, Jacqueline Cam. And we're back. Now for this next interview, I got to lead it up with Mike Johnson, who's a writer for the Star Trek comics at IDW Publishing. And you can really hear me get super stoked in the process of doing this interview, mostly because I, I already love getting to do this show and getting to talk about a thing I really love. But then talking about a thing I really love in a medium I really love, and then talking about a thing I love in a medium I love that's mashed up with another franchise that I really love, <laughs> you can kind of hear me go off the deep end a couple times. And it was great chatting with Mike. I hope I get to do it again in the future, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Are you maybe talking about the Transformers crossover just a little bit? Maybe. This is Grace coming to you from Star Trek Las Vegas, and we've got a very special guest from over at the IDW booth. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you. My name is Mike Johnson. I write Star Trek comics for IDW Publishing, and I'm so excited to be here. It's great. Right. We've actually reviewed a few of your uh, comics on both our website, uh, both the show and the blog. Are there any particular Star Trek projects that you've worked on that you're especially proud of and that you would like to put emphasis on? Yeah, the most fun was we did a Star Trek Green Lantern crossover, which was just crazy ridiculous, like banging your action figures together when you're a kid. So that was that was probably the most crazy fun one. The one that probably means the most is we did a, a four-issue miniseries called the, the Legacy of Spock, which actually was part of the ongoing Star Trek series, but it was like a four-issue story. And it, it was just kind of like a, a tribute and farewell to Leonard Nimoy after he passed. And... Um, just celebrating Spock at different points in his life, and that it, it got a great response from readers, and that one means the most. That must have been really cathartic as a fan to work on. Did you feel any kind of pressure that this was how you were going to represent this monumental figure in sci-fi, that you really wanted to get it right? Was there pressure there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. You, you want to make sure that you're not only... Um, story-wise, that you're telling a story that's worthy of the character and the actor, but you want to make sure you get the voice right. And, and honestly, like, all of us who are Trek fans, we have Nimoy and Spock and his voice in our heads, you know, and in our hearts. Like, we know what he sounds like. And uh, so I was just listening to that voice as I was writing to, to, to hopefully do justice to it. And what's it like trying to get into all of those different characters' heads and getting that voice in your head when you're representing characters that have been written across this huge gamut of media and then you're doing your little take on them? How does that, how does that feel? How do you go through that process? 
Well, I, uh, I used to do uh, a, a little bit of acting in uh, high school and college, and um, it's really a, a lot of it, I think, when you're writing licensed work is you're kind of um, doing... Uh, imitation sounds like a harsher word than I mean, but you're, you're sort of imitating the actors. You're, you're putting on their persona. So, you know, writing the Kelvin Universe comics... I would just, you know, I've seen the movie so many times, but I would just try to capture the, even though it's not an audio in the comic, it's the sort of cadence of their words and, um, you know, how they would how they would convey certain ideas. So it was very, it's, it's really fun. It's kind of like, okay, now I'm in, you know, Zachary Quinto's voice and now I'm in Chris Pine's Kirk voice. So it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's more like sort of play acting. Yeah. I've known multiple writers who sort of talk to themselves and their characters' voices when they're trying to keep track of a lot of personalities at once. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely talk out loud. That's why you have to be careful, like, if you go to a coffee shop to work <laughs> and you're like, no, Captain. I get it. That would not be logical. Um, so, yeah, when I'm at home, though, I will definitely, like, talk out the dialogue, yeah. Now, uh, we touched earlier on you doing the crossover comic with Star Trek and Green Lantern. Is it rough to be mashing up uh, properties like that, to be working across multiple universes that you know everyone's going to have opinions on and everyone has strong feelings on? I, for one, was a big fan of uh, Star Trek and Transformers mashed up together. That was fun. Uh, So, yeah, tell us how it is to mash things together like that, to get to put your action figures together in the sandbox. Yeah. The, the the absolute most important thing is that you have two companies uh, who own the franchises who are in- invested and want it to happen. That it's not just like a cynical cash grab or something, but that they want to have fun too. So they let you play with, you know, because both, as you alluded to, like both Star Trek and Green Lantern have not only massive mythologies and lore going back decades, but they have very passionate fan bases, right? And there's definitely a Venn diagram of Star Trek fans and Green Lantern fans, but there's also people outside the, you know, outside the Venn diagram that, that uh, have never read the other franchise, and it's like, why are you putting peanut butter in my chocolate and vice versa? So I think the important thing is just to make sure... What I did was I made a list of the characters that I wanted to use that I thought had the most opportunity to bounce off each other, right? Like, starting with, of course, you got to have the sort of um, alpha males of uh, Jim Kirk and and um, Hal Jordan banging into each other. But also, like, having fun, like, poking fun at that alpha maleness, you know? It's just so ridiculous. And, and then, you know, just, uh, again, taking advantage of how rich the mythologies are. And I, I got to say, like, just thanks to uh, CBS and to... Um, to DC Comics who let me sort of run with stuff and uh, it ended up being a lot of fun and we got we got 12 issues out of it which was great now again going back to the mashups is there like a dream mashup you have to work on at this point that you would given the chance do in an absolute heartbeat that you would consider your masterpiece oh my masterpiece oh yeah, man dream um, that is a real I'll tell you the one I would never do is Star Trek Star Wars <laughs> I'm never going to. It's I know, like, you know, can the Millennium Falcon blow up the Enterprise? It's interesting when you, when you you know I've worked on so many Star Trek things. Um, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Like, I'm a Star Wars baby, and I don't believe that you have to choose one or the other. But 
we can all be star friends. Exactly. And um, I sort of need something that I can just be a fan about, right? So I'm, I geek out over Star Wars as much as anyone. Um, and I just wouldn't want to cross those streams, right? Uh, th- something I would like to work on, there was an idea for a Star Trek Alien crossover, which I think would be really cool. But I believe my friends, the Tipton brothers, great Star Trek writers, they were in line to do that. So I don't want to steal it from them. But if they didn't want to do it, that's the one I would want to do. Like a, more of a creepy uh, horror sci-fi vibe with Star Trek. I would love to see that. Um, also, stepping away from Star Trek for a minute, we see a lot of uh, property crossovers with IDW these days, and we see some really good ones. Is there one outside of Star Trek that you'd ever be interested in doing or would like to try doing? I do know that you guys try and keep it by uh, franchise separated together, but just as a thought. That is a great question. I would have I to think. Too. No, no. Um, there are... There's, so this wouldn't be Star Trek. These would be two other things? Yeah. Um, Turtles would be fun. And uh, I'm trying to think of the licenses they have. You know, I, I love how popular My Little Pony has become. And like, I'm a I'm like a '70s '80s kid, so I was there when My Little Pony first came out, and I'm I'm like this little boy, and I'm like, oh, it's the girl stuff. I just think it'd be awesome to like get into that world and learn about it and write it now. Another crazy mythology, and going and being like, I'm sorry, everybody, I I I will never know as much as you do, but it looks like a lot of fun to do. So like, My Little Pony, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, yeah. Now, we touched really briefly on you saying that you consider yourself kind of a Star Wars baby. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your personal relationship with Star Trek and what that means to you and what you're trying to represent? Yeah. So I was probably even a Star Trek fan before I was Star Wars because I was, I, was, um, I was four years old when Star Wars came out. So it was the first movie I saw in the theater. But before that, I'd been playing with the old Mego huge Star Trek figures. You know the ones I'm talking about? ones with the rubber bands and like the bright blue phasers and the cloth uniforms and those were my favorite toys and I didn't I was too young because I'm like three four to know what they meant but I knew that like Spock had the ears and Kirk was the yellow and my well said yeah exactly so um and then you know I'd watch TOS the original series and then I was 14 when TNG premiered which was like perfect right and it was like my Star Trek, you know, and um, obviously I was like nine years old when um, Wrath of Khan came out, which was like the greatest movie ever. So, um, yeah, it's real. That's sort of my origins with Trek, and it's it's just it's paralleled my Star Trek love, and you know, honestly, I'm um, sorry, my Star Wars love. You know, people forget the great Star Wars uh, drought in the '90s when there was just like Episode One was never going to happen. And we would never even, we'd been thinking about episode nine since we were little kids. And it was like, that's never going to happen. We got three movies and that was going to be it. So during that time, Star Trek kept the kind of space franchise um, thing going. So I think they're very symbiotic, actually. Like, do the fandoms need to have an enemy to fight up against? Or <laughs> yeah, that's where that toxicity Yeah. There's definitely a need to be the alpha male in terms of fandom as well some ways. It's a little weird. But um, what kind of stories do you think it's important to represent with Star Trek? What do you think is the kind of story worth telling specifically with Star Trek? 
Wow, that is that is the number one question. It's a great question. I think you know I was walking around the convention today, and I love it so much because it's such a cross section of humanity. It's so diverse. It's so inclusive. Um, it's so optimistic, and I think all those things are absolutely integral to what Star Trek is. And uh, you want to have so that's one element of it is you want to reflect hope and optimism. You know, Star Trek is us, and Star Wars is aliens in a galaxy a long time ago and Star, Star Trek is our dream of our future and it's inspiring scientists today um, so you, wanna, you want your Star Trek stories to reflect what's going on in a way that the TOS uh, stories started telling social parables essentially right so I think that's always critical to, to that's something that makes Star Trek Star Trek and just yeah that, that feeling of diversity and it's kind of ironic that um, a franchise that's known for its diversity uh, still started with like the white captain, right? The white male captain, right? Because like that was the time. The message is only as good as the media. Exactly, right? But at the same time, they put Uhura on the bridge and they put Sulu on the bridge at a, you know at a critical time in American history, and. Um, you know, in that sense, Star Trek was so groundbreaking, and I think never losing that sense of what the franchise can do is really important. That's a wonderful answer, I gotta say. Um, so I know you probably can't talk about a lot of them, but we do know you've got some upcoming projects down the pipeline. Is there anything you can tell us about them and give our listeners just a little hint of things to come? Yeah, sure. So um, if the podcast gets interrupted, it's because I got tackled by CBS people. Oh, God, here they come. Here they come. Oh, my God. With bat lefts. Uh, we just totally the, scared, <laughs> we just scared everyone. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so um, what can I say? Um, so we're doing – so in August, we are launching a three-issue discovery series called Aftermath that takes place after season two. Uh, we can't touch season three of Discovery. We can't go into the future with – with the ship so we're staying behind after the ship leaves and we're seeing how the events of season two affected captain pike and spock and my favorite character in the new show laurel chancellor laurel is my favorite character it's incredible so it was an opportunity to tell more laurel uh more pike and more spock as he's dealing with burnham's uh departure after they like reunited suddenly she's gone and then it was really fun to write uh kind of a pike laurel back and forth where they're trying to uh, form a, a bit of more of an alliance but of course they're they're both representing two opposed empires essentially so um, that's aftermath that's three issues starting in August and then in November we're starting our Picard miniseries called countdown to the show three issues um, and what can I say? Uh, I can tell you that it is set between the end of Star Trek Nemesis and the begin and the and the first pilot episode of the show, and it tells the story of an event where Picard first meets a couple of characters that you're going to meet in the show. So we're going to introduce them in the comic, and you'll and you'll meet them in the show. And other than that, I can't spoil anything, but. That must be really cool to get to kind of be the person to introduce these characters then before the show's even out. Yeah, it's great. It's uh, it's one of the benefits of working with uh, Kirsten Beyer, who's co-writing the series with me, and it's really Kirsten's story. Kirsten was uh, one of the creators of the the show itself. Really came out of her idea to do it, and um, 
the story is straight from from her. It's like here's a part of Picard's history that we can tell in the comic because we don't have time to do it in the show. So, um, you know, to be working so closely with her is the best. And what's it like kind of trying to capture a character who is iconic, definitely, without question? Like when you're writing Spock, how is that different from trying to encapsulate a character like Picard? Yeah, it's intimidating. <laughs> like I'm, I'm nervous about it. I'm, I have to leave the convention and go home and sit in front of my laptop and like not freak out. And uh, it gets back to a little bit of the play acting. I've written a couple of Picard scenes. We had a, a little scene with him in Q in one of the comics. And then in the Spock story we talked about earlier, uh, we had a flashback um, to when Spock and Picard were on Romulus together. So I got a little bit of Picard. Oh, thank you so much. I, uh, yeah, it was a blast to write. And so I have a little bit of Picard under my belt. I think I'd be really freaked out if I'd never written in his voice. But um, it's going to be a challenge. But I've got my little um, Picard facepalm bust on my desk. So uh, actually, I probably shouldn't have that because it makes him, it looks like he's disappointed with what I'm writing. He's judging me. So I'm going to have to find like a happy Picard engage bust here somewhere. Anyway. There's an old TV guide for sale that he looks really happy on the cover of. Yeah. Getting back into a broad question again. But what do you think we need to see more of in Star Trek stories in the future to keep going in the direction we've been going of an optimistic future in its portrayal? I think um, more people with, uh, who are differently abled, I think, is important. And, um, again, getting back to the the diversity theme of Star Trek and just seeing uh, more of that cross-section of humanity and um, reflecting who we are today but in the future. Uh, that's probably my biggest thing is, is to see how, you know, explorations of that. Star Trek has always explored, like, what it means to be human and, you know, um, using alien races as uh, mirrors against which to, to view our own prejudices and things like that. So uh, to ne- I guess my biggest thing is to never lose a, a, a bit of the, 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 not a bit of, but never lose that kind of social awareness uh, that, that, that is just quintessentially Star Trek. Now, we actually have a couple of lists, uh, at least a few listeners who aren't that into comics but are into Star Trek, if you could believe it or not. Are there any major Star Trek comics or pieces of the Star Trek history that's in them that you think that is essential for them to check out? Yeah, um, there's a great series right now uh, called Star Trek Year 5, which is basically like the the lost season of the original series. Uh written by my pals uh, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly and a great, talented group of writers. Uh, and um, that just came out from IDW. And I think people who maybe haven't read a lot of comics would really enjoy that series. Um, comics by Scott and David Tipton, uh, who have done a, lot, a ton of Star Trek comics for IDW. Uh, they've done work across lots of different versions of Trek. They have a great Mirror Universe story with uh, The Next Generation that's great. Um, I, my stuff is mostly the, the new movies, so if you like the new movies, um, you might like the comics I've worked on. Um, and I would just say, uh, don't be afraid to like visit your local comic shop, and they'll be happy to answer any questions you have and show you around. There's a lot of great... There's also archival Star Trek comics that IDW puts together, uh, comics from back in the day uh, with the original crew. 
and you know hopefully hopefully it scratches your trek itch yeah it's there's so much out there and it's such a great um medium of its own on its own right well thank you so much for talking to us we're wrapping up on time right now um but are there any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with anything you absolutely feel is essential for knowing about star trek in general as a fan and as a writer yeah well first of all thank you thank you for having me thank you for all you do and um i think just as a fan i'm just happy to see it um back on the screens in a really robust way you know the animated series are coming i'm really excited about the nickelodeon animated series which is going to be aimed at younger viewers because there's never really been something just for kids in the Star Trek world like just for them even the animated series even the animated series was like it's almost more it's it's almost skewing more to the regular adult fans so the Nickelodeon series I'm super excited about um yeah so I'm just excited for everything that's coming and I again I just think the message of Star Trek especially right now I mean as we speak in the world today we we need it and we need its message so thanks for having me Thank you so much for talking to us. Where can people find you online? Yeah, so I I grew up before the internet, so social media scares me. But I do have a Twitter account. Uh, it's at Mike Comics, which is M I K E C O M I X. Um, it's mostly Star Trek, mostly comics, a little bit of Cubs baseball. Um, don't let that scare you off. Uh, yeah, so I, I like to uh, talk about the process and highlight Star Trek artists uh, and their work. So, yeah, feel free to reach out to me on on Twitter. I think we've got some really interesting stuff from both of our interviewees in this episode. And I know, Grace, you always love catching up with IDW. Oh, hell yeah, I do. (laughs) They own my soul at this point. Oh, and they have so much good stuff in the works and on the go. Um, I know I was really excited um, to see that uh, Jody Hauser's writing for them now, who writes the also the uh, 13th Doctor comics and is like are some of the best Doctor Who comics I've ever read. It, yeah, I mean, they're just, there's a plethora of awesome IDW comics. And uh, it was cool that you got to talk to them. Please do check out their fine array of products. <laughs> <laughs> and after you're done doing that, you can find us on social media. Grace, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJank and also being drowned in this pile of comics I got at the con. <laughs> and Jarrah? You can find me at Jarrah Penguin. That's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin and at TrekkieFeminist.com. And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Speltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. As always, you can find the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Women at Warp. You can shoot us an email at crew at womenatwarp.com. Visit our blog at womenatwarp.com, and for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. The Roddenberry Podcast Network, podcast.roddenberry.com.